Lord God, we thank You for the gift of life, and we recognize that life is not easy and life is challenging, and at times we experience the brokenness of our world. We thank You that Your redemptive arc works through all times, longing to bring things into compliance with Your desires, and that You've allowed us to see glimpses of the plan that is still unfolding throughout history, plans that show us that one day You will redeem everything. You will restore the world to its original splendor, and You will reign with justice here in this world. We thank You that Jesus has come and announced this kingdom of redemption and light and life and joy and peace, and that more and more as we come to find ourselves under His leadership, we are citizens of that kingdom, although we live within this world of broken systems. Lord, we pray for those who struggle. Sometimes we don't talk about things like this very often at church, but depression is real, and it's difficult, and sometimes it's long. And people struggle with all kinds of things around us. Prepare us to deal with the ups and downs in our own lives. Prepare us to deal with and respond to, with compassion, the ups and downs of the people who are part of our lives as well, our neighbors, our friends, our family members. Restore to us that vision of Your redemptive power that gives us hope and gives us the determination to press on through all kinds of challenging situations, knowing that there is yet something around the corner which fits into Your purpose for each of our lives. And that as long as there's breath in our lungs, you are not through with any of us. Thank you for the hope which culminates in Jesus and His grace and His mercy. And allow this congregation to be a people who are filled with grace and mercy and redemption and compassion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Elijah's an amazing character. Elijah is coming off the mountaintop emotional high from a spiritual battle, experiences what many students of the Bible see as a bout with a deep, dark depression. Depression is a very real mood disorder that has been described as bottomless sadness. And Elijah's dark night is so deep that he wants to die, and he asks God to take his life. The word that we use to describe that desire sometimes is the word suicidal. But one of the traits here at North River that we found over the years is that there are times when we take on tough topics and we just hit them head on and we try to do it fairly and expose what the Scriptures actually have to say to us. So I wanted you to see that, that video fumes, not just because of the dark side at the beginning, because of what happened as we progressed through that, that here's a person who discovered that uh, in, in, the, in the process of his own plans being frustrated, there was yet a purpose, and he found that in that moment when he could defend somebody else's life. And the words that ring true are when the woman says to him, you saved my life. 
Psychiatry students were in a college class one day, and their professor began a discussion to prove a point. He said, what we're going to talk about today are the emotional extremes that many mentally disturbed people go through. For example, and he asked some questions, what's the opposite of joy? He asked one student, the student responded, sadness. He asked another, the opposite of depression, and a young woman answered, elation. And then he turned to a young man from Texas, and he said, what's the opposite of woe? Well, now, the Texan said, in Texas, I suppose the opposite of woe would be giddy up. <laughs> we can laugh about stuff like that, but depression is a very real part of life for many people, and it's not a laughing matter at all. Jewish theologians and rabbis consider Elijah the second greatest of all the prophets, second only to Moses. So perhaps it comes as a surprise to us that 1 Kings chapter 19 presents what Indiana pastor Jeff Streit refers to as, quote, a case study in clinical depression by allowing us to observe a variety of symptoms that uh, he faces. We discover fear. Uh, Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. There are suicidal tendencies. He, he calls out to God and he says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. And then he lays down as if it would happen right then. There is an excessive tiredness that takes over. He, he lay down under the bush and he slept, and, and he, and he slept. And, and then even after he eats, he goes back to sleep. And it appears that he sleeps in this funk that he finds himself in for days. And he's also dealing with feelings of rejection. Twice he repeats this explanation of what's going on in his thoughts. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put the, sir, put the prophets to death by the sword. I am the only one left, he says. And now they're trying to kill me too. Question, what are you and I make of Elijah's depression? And is there something that we can learn from Elijah in this situation? Is there something we can learn from the way that the Lord responds to him at this low point in his life? I think there is, and the central idea that I want to get across this morning is this. The mission ahead may demand all you have, but our God tenderly restores His servants. I'd like to walk you through six lessons. There are five lessons. There are probably more. I actually cut this back a bit, but that we can learn from Elijah. Here's the first one. Some assignments, when we are following God, some assignments call for great risk and exposure. Look at the way these first two verses start out. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. I need to unpack this a little bit so that those of you who aren't as familiar with the story get brought into it. There's a myth that we sometimes deal with in the church that serving God automatically leads to a life of safety, comfort, and relative boredom. The truth is, Elijah lived a life of risk and excitement during a time of great spiritual controversy and demise. Demise is an interesting word. That demise came during the reign of King Ahab of Israel, somewhere around 874 to 852 B.C., about 21 to 22 years that he reigned. Ahab was the son of King Omri, 
who built Samaria as his capital city. In the years when Israel had become split into two kingdoms after Solomon's death, there was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and he was reigning over the northern kingdom, which took the name Israel. And Ahab's father, Omri, had started to lead Israel away from serving the God of their forefathers, the God of the creation, to serve some of the idols around them, most notoriously the idol known as Baal. Jezebel enters into this scene. She becomes the wife of Ahab. And when Ahab married this uh, Tyrian princess, she was from Tyre in Phoenicia, the kingdom just to the north of Israel. It's the land that we would call Jordan today. This was most likely intended to be a political marriage uniting Israel with the very powerful kingdom of Phoenicia. Jezebel was the daughter of a man named King Ithbael, the king of Tyre, who made an alliance with Ahab. And the price of making this alliance was a family member, and so his daughter was given to Ahab in marriage. The Phoenicians were considered the most cosmopolitan leaders of that time. Their sailors were masters of the Mediterranean. They were the first to develop square sails, which allowed them to sail even in the midst of storms. And the people of Tyre worshipped Baal, who was known as the storm god. And so the, the name Jezebel literally means uh, woman of the Lord in her language, or woman of Baal. And her whole... Uh, upbringing had been wrapped around service to this particular idol. Now Ahab and Jezebel developed a vision, and their vision pursued a political reality of trying to consolidate power by uniting Israel with the Baal-serving nations that were all around Israel. Doing this involved turning the people away from exclusive worship to Yahweh, the God of their forefathers, the God who created the world. And then along comes this man named Elijah who puts a monkey wrench into that vision and the plan that they were working on. Elijah was called by God to serve as a prophet to the kings in the northern territory during, Abra during Ahab's reign. His name is, has a very specific meaning. The, the name Elijah means, my God is Yahweh. In other words, my God is the ancient God. My God is, is the real God. My God is the God who created everything that we see. It's possible that that name is a title given him by the Lord as a calling card in ministry. And Elijah came on the scene some three years or so before chapter 19, announcing that the Lord had declared that there would be no rain and no dew in the land as part of his judgment because Israel had been turning away to worship Baal. Elijah's ministry was done mostly as a solo act. Think of Rambo operating all alone on a covert mission. Nobody helps him. In fact, a lot of his time is alone. And when he stands before the king, he stands alone. There's no entourage. There's no school of Elijah prophets who are with him supporting him. And Elijah was known as a miracle worker. First, he declares on God's behalf that there will be this drought which lasts for several years he was involved in the resurrection of a dead Sidonian boy. He called down fire from the sky that uh, ate up a sacrifice when he was doing battle one on 450 against the prophets of Baal. And he was miraculously kept alive by a flour jar and an olive oil jar that never ran out during the long period of drought. There's more, but it kind of gives you a picture of this cluster of miraculous things that happen around the ministry of Elijah. 
Oh, and there was great risk that was attached to Elijah's ministry. Elijah was called to directly confront Ahab and Jezebel's plan to turn Israel over to Baal. The highlight of Elijah's ministry was confronting these prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel. And there were two altars set up, and a bull was sacrificed, and the meat was placed on the wood of each altar. But Elijah gives instructions given to him by the Lord that neither party is to set fire to the altar. They're to call on their God to send fire from the sky. And whichever God sends fire to the sky to ignite the wood and the animal on the altar, that's the true God, and that's the one who will be worshipped forevermore. So all morning long, the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, go first, and they call upon their God. And when it starts to get about noontime, Elijah starts to call out. Well, call a little louder. Maybe your God is asleep and he doesn't hear you. And they start flagellating themselves. They're whipping themselves, and there's blood that's flowing, and they're thinking that will somehow awaken their God and say, well, maybe he's eating. Maybe he went to the bathroom, and, and he just doesn't know what's going on, and he's mocking them. Finally, towards the end of the day, Elijah calls on the God of heaven, the Creator God, and says, Oh God, you know, everything's at stake here. Our people have begun to worship these idols, and they're giving your glory to carved images. Send your fire. And fire comes from the sky. It, it, licks, it, 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 it ignites the wood, which has been drenched with water by this time, because Elijah just wanted to make the point how great God is. And it burns up everything. And with that, the people of Israel turn their hearts back toward the Lord. And they realize they've been duped and they've been led astray by these prophets of Baal. And they break out their swords and they start killing all the prophets of the Baal. There's a huge risk and a huge spiritual high that Elijah was on. And God reveals himself. Immediately after that moment, Elijah's victory exposed him to the murderous wrath of Queen Jezebel, and she made it her mission that he would die within the next day or two if she could do anything about it. And so there is great danger attached to that risk. Some assignments that come from God involve great risk and exposure. Here's the second lesson we learn. The Lord acknowledged Elijah's depression. Verse 3 tells us a little bit more of the story. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. Now, we don't know how long he was sleeping, but an angel wakes him up. He looked around, and there by his head he saw some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. What an amazing reversal of events. From victory on the top of Mount Carmel to wanting to die. It appears that a confluence of factors were impacting Elijah at this moment. He was facing spiritual exhaustion from this spiritual battle that he'd been alone in. He was facing physical exhaustion. He'd run all the way from Mount Carmel down to the Valley of Jezreel, trying to get ahead of the storm, trying to get, get ahead of King Ahab's chariot. There was personal 
and emotional exhaustion from serving in an isolated role for so long, thinking that he was alone. And then on top of that was the threat of this powerful queen's fatwa or death sentence upon Elijah. Notice that at this moment when he bottoms out, when he's totally broken, there is no judgment from God toward Elijah in this scene. None what's at all. None at all. There's not any of this blame saying, well, Elijah, you brought this on yourself. You're out of balance. Uh, There's not some claim that Elijah sinned, and, and so this is judgment from God. There's only understanding. Remember, these words in this chapter was written long before the development of modern psychiatry or psychology. And remember, too, Elijah was the man of God for this era. God does not make some judgmental claim or doesn't say that Elijah lacked faith. Instead, God provides for him, and he gives him rest, and he gives him time to think. Now, I have to tell you something that's part of the realism of of Christian faith. The mission that God gives you at some point in your life may bring you to the point of exhaustion and overload and to the point where you think you can't carry on for another step. Because sometimes God entrusts us with things that are worth doing that take everything that you have even to the point of absolute exhaustion. But you need to know what's on the other side that this passage also reveals to us the heart of God when we get to the limits of our human capacity, that He stands beside us and He restores us to strength. That's the God that we follow. That's the God that we meet here in the midst of this uh, amazing example from Elijah. Here's the third lesson that I found. God may allow severe trials in our lives in order to draw us closer to Him. He may allow severe trials to drive us closer to Him. Verse 7 picks this up. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So here's a second time that Elijah is fed. We're told about a journey that's still uh, coming. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. I don't know if 40 days and 40 nights means literally he walked 40 days and 40 nights supernaturally uh, empowered by God, or 40 days and 40 nights is kind of spiritual code language to say he went a long time, and this is conditioning us to think of Moses, to think of Noah, to think of times when God did great things through a long, sustained period of time. And he's taking him to the mountain of God. There's a great debate among the theologians. Is this the same place as Mount Sinai? But it appears to be the place where God had revealed Himself once before to the only other person who had this kind of experience that Elijah's about to have, Moses. When Moses was hidden away in the cleft of a rock and God's glory passed by. And Elijah has a very similar experience. And it makes us wonder if this was the exact same cave that Moses had hidden, if this is the exact same cleft of the rock. And now for a second time, God is revealing His personal glory. The passage goes on to say, And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. 
I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Notice how God took specific steps to drive Elijah closer to him through this scenario. First, he took Elijah to a holy place, Mount Horeb, the place where God visits his people, perhaps where he had met with Moses many, many years before. Second, he had Elijah tell him what the problem was. There's a reason why this occurs twice, where he's asked the question twice, what are you doing here, Elijah? Because Elijah then has to voice what's going on inside of him. He's telling God what he's feeling. And the last part of that is the most important piece of the puzzle. Third, he exposed and dealt with Elijah's false beliefs, which were a part of the package here. Because in his discouragement, Elijah had lost perspective. He hadn't sinned, but he'd lost perspective. And then he gave Elijah a task. He let him know that he wasn't done with him. There was more that he wanted to involve Elijah in. In the midst of all the work, Elijah had allowed the power of Jezebel's threat to become greater in his mind than the strength of the Lord to sustain him, even though the Lord had already revealed himself so greatly to Elijah, preserving him through that time of drought and providing for him miraculously, showing his power on the top of that mountain, and all the other miraculous events that had gone on in Elijah's life. At this moment, Elijah's false beliefs were exposed when the Lord asked him that second time, what are you doing here, Elijah? Notice what he says if we break down his answer. First, he says that he'd been very zealous for the Lord. That was true. He had been. Second, he spoke of how the people had rejected the Lord. That was mostly true, but he had no way of knowing if that meant that everybody in Israel had, had reacted the same way and we'll find out that not all had. Third, Elijah says, I am the only one left. And that proved not to be true because God was working in ways that Elijah couldn't see. Elijah had lost perspective of the greatness of the God of Israel, and fear had taken hold. And as fear took hold in his life, his perspective of God and what God was doing became distorted. When fear overtakes us as Christians, we lose sight of God's strength. It can happen to any of us, and it probably does happen to all of us at some time. Elijah needed a tangible, life-changing reminder of just how great God is. And so God shows up on the side of that mountain, and before he does, he sends this powerful rock-shattering wind, and it says he, God wasn't in the wind. And then there's this earthquake that shakes everything, and it Again, the text says that God wasn't in the earthquake. And then there's this raging fire, and it says that God wasn't in the fire. He wasn't in any of these phenomena. And finally, the Lord spoke to Elijah in a gentle whisper. The Lord had sent Elijah and allowed him to serve in this very demanding role. And this role took everything that Elijah had. The risk was that it would push him to the end of his endurance, to the end of his human limitations, where he would hit the wall. And when he hit the wall of his physical and spiritual limits, that's when the Lord stepped in. There are many people in life who seek out demanding roles in whatever they do. 
Think of the training for Navy SEALs or Army Rangers. Those people want to get pushed to the absolute limit to figure out if they can stand with the best of the best and forevermore say, I survived it. And there are many phenomenal athletes, phenomenal soldiers, phenomenal sailors who wash out in that process because it's actually very few who survive that kind of testing. Sometimes in the jobs that you take on, you're looking for the next challenge. You're not satisfied with just coasting where you're at. We look for the next thing that will test our abilities. And many of us are kind of wired that way in this life. Athletics can provide some of that same push beyond what you think is possible. Elijah shows us that sometimes God puts his people in roles that push them to the limits because when we reach the end of ourselves, we are, focus, we are forced to focus and reach out for God in a completely new way. And Elijah was going to discover God in a way that he'd never known God before. Again, we see the mission may demand all that you have, but God tenderly restores his servants. The fourth discovery I made in working through this this week is that we must leave the darkness in order to see God's glory. Verse 11 tips us off to this. The Lord says to Elijah while he's inside that cave on the mountain, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Verse 9 tells us that Elijah found a cave on that mountain and he went inside for the night and the cave was safe, the cave was dark, the cave gave him space where he was alone. When the Lord finally spoke to him, he let him know that he needed to come to the mouth of that cave where everything that would happen was beyond his control. He needed to come to the mouth of that cave in order to see God's glory. And this was the beginning of God's work in restoring Elijah's perspective. It started with a renewed vision of just how strong the Lord is, that he was stronger than that rock-shattering wind, that he was stronger than the earthquake that moves uh, the earth around them and the the various structures around him, and he was stronger than that fire that could devour most of the things that we create in this life. And the Lord showed Elijah the work that Elijah had not seen. In the final verse of this passage, he says something amazing to Elijah. He says, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all who have not bowed their knees to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. In other words, he's saying, Elijah, you think you're all alone. Elijah, you've told me twice here that you're the last one left, and you're not. There are 7,000 people tucked away in Israel despite the fact that the king has tried to change the entire worship system, and most people have gone along with it. There are 7,000 people who are faithful to me. They're just waiting for my call. You're not alone. That's one of the things that we often discover when our perspective is renewed. We see the wider work of God's redemptive plan, that it's always larger than we can imagine. We only see a small uh, part of the vision at any time because we're not capable of being infinite in the way that God is. And sometimes our finiteness takes over. But here's the final lesson we learn from Elijah. God is not finished when you hit the wall. God is not finished when the person that you love so greatly hits that wall. So we pick it up again in verse 15. There it says, The Lord said to him, Go back. In other words, I still have more for you to do, Elijah. Go back the way you came 
and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram, also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel Meholah to succeed you as prophet. After allowing Elijah to see the glory of the Lord passing by, there was this other step. He had a new assignment for Elijah. There were leaders to anoint, and he wanted Elijah involved to the hilt. One was a king from a surrounding nation, Hazael from the nation of Aram. The second person was the next king who would follow Ahab, which had to give Israel hope that Ahab's days were going to be numbered. And then he says, I'm going to give you an assistant who will work with you for a while, and then who will take over from you when the time comes to pass the baton. His name is Elisha. If God is in the process of restoring you after hitting whatever the wall is in your life, realize that he hasn't given up on you. There are plans that are still unfulfilled, that are yet ahead. There's more that he will involve you in, but he will give you time when you've expended all that you have to rest, to heal, to listen, to regain perspective. And there we see the redemptive arc of God's work. The mission in the moment was for God to turn the hearts of the people of Israel back toward the Lord. And he was using Elijah in a very, very difficult, pivotal role. It had all the risk that makes something exciting, and it had all of the challenges that came from being alone. We see that arc of God today as God is turning hearts of people toward Jesus today. It's an ongoing work. Sometimes it seems like a challenge. Sometimes it seems like you're operating in complete darkness. But God is not through. God is not done. And when we read these pages, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, of a variety of characters who walk closely with God or walk closely with His Son, Jesus, we discover people who also had these great highs and lows. Think of Peter who walked so greatly with Jesus, who was released from jail at one time, but then experiences the huge devastating low when he denies even knowing Jesus during that hour of trial. Whatever you're going through, God sees. Whatever you're going through, you're not alone. Whatever you're going through, it somehow fits into the redemptive arc of God if we just hold on a bit longer. If we find rest, if we turn toward Him and our perspective is renewed, and you and I often help other people along that journey. It's why we're told to have compassion. It's why we're told to listen, why we're told to be gentle in the way that we restore other fellow travelers on the journey. God isn't finished with any of us yet. I hope you'll take that as an encouragement. Let's pray for a moment. God, our Father, thank you for these examples of people who sometimes experience the brokenness of life, like our friend Elijah. Thank you for using him in such a great and phenomenal way and reminding us that he was just a man and that he had limitations too. Thank you for filling us with the hope that there may be an assignment yet where you call us into something that takes great risk or that exposes us to personal opposition or difficulty, but you are the God who is able to strengthen us for the journey. And if we lose perspective and we lose hope, 
You are the God who's able to pick us up and restore us again and to show us more of what you're doing, more of your plan, more of the hope that you are sowing in this world. Thank you for involving us in a mission that is worthwhile. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let me call on our ushers and we'll receive this morning's offering. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for being a part of this series. I'm looking forward to being away the next six weeks. I'm taking a sabbatical and our team is going to carry on and uh, I'm really looking forward to what they're going to do. And uh, we've got one last song that brings us to some of that hope of, of hallelujahs and the way that God restores.